When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. As you walk hand in hand with that special someone, with the waves lapping idly about your feet, the wind is brisk, the air fresh. And as you gaze out across the sea, standing in awe as old Saul breaks from his watery grave, here now, the new dawn. Catch the sun when it's rising. Welcome to the Ugly Things Podcast. I'm Mike Stacks, the editor and publisher of Ugly Things Magazine. If you're a record collector, and especially if you're a collector of rare psychedelic records, you'll know who Paul Major is. Paul has done probably more than anyone to raise awareness about not only rare psychedelic rock albums from the 60s and 70s, but also the entire sweep of what we now commonly refer to as private press records. That is, albums that were manufactured in small quantities, often as custom orders or vanity pressings, and given very little, if any, promotion or distribution. Most of these albums lay undiscovered and unknown until collectors and record dealers like Paul began to excavate them, evaluate them, and circulate the music, initially among just a small circle of fans and collectors. Paul's mail-order catalog in the late 80s and early 90s was an amazing resource for discovering these forgotten, ultra-obscure records. His descriptions of these albums and the music on them were works of art in themselves and always a thrill to read. You can experience some of them for yourself in Paul's book, Feel the Music, the Psychedelic Worlds of Paul Major. Paul's unique insights and wisdom about the world of private pressings can also be experienced in special private press episodes of Dave Gebro's excellent Discography podcasts. In this episode of the Ugly Things podcast, I talk to Dave about his work with Discography and to Paul about his journey as a music fan, a collector, an archivist, and chronicler of private press records. If there's a theme for this episode, it's obsession. If you share that obsession, I think you're going to enjoy this episode a lot. So, um, you know, maybe we should talk a little bit about what private press records are. Um, Paul, you want to try to define that for us for people listening that might not really know yes. what private press is? Yes, our margins are a little loose in the extension of sticking strictly to private press. Sometimes we'll sneak something that's a tiny little label that somebody started. So technically they had their record made 
a private press, but they thought it was a label or whatever. But private pressings are one of the wonders uh, of the world, pre-internet and everything like that. Back in the day, uh, all the way back, and especially the time frame that uh, I'm mainly concerned with, mid-60s through the 70s, when somebody wanted to get their music out there, they couldn't put it online. You know, they could send cassettes off or whatever, but they had to make their own record, basically. And there were pressing plants, uh, Custom Fidelity, RPC, Silvercrest, uh, organizations that uh, anybody can get a record manufactured. They just send the tape, pick the generic cover, unless they have their own cover design out of the catalog. Like if uh, if it's folk record, they might want to, you know, have some uh, somebody sitting on a on a porch with. Uh, in a sunset or whichever but uh private pressings are basically it's like a van published book anybody can go there and uh, a lot of uh struggling obscure artists back then uh say in kansas city or des moines or somewhere like that was really their only option so yeah okay that, that's private pressing so paul you i mean you've probably done more than anybody that out there to first uncover and raise awareness about these kinds of albums you know how did you first start getting into digging out these kinds of records it was really my obsession uh late 1966 when i had just turned 12 years old it was the right time to come into music as a kid that was into ufos and uh b-movie horror stuff and all that kind of stuff kids into mad magazine and then i hear psychotic reaction on the radio and my life changed like the next day all i could think of is i got to hear that again i got to hear that again and i'd hear songs like talk talk by the music machine and so forth in this wonderful time period late 1966 when i came in and instantly i had to have more of that so i started going to the head shops along bardstown road in louisville and the cutout bins in the chain stores kmart and that looking for records that might taking LSD would be like music to go to another world. So I was basically buying anything from the get-go. Uh, I would buy, you know, Kinks albums and Stones and all these kinds of things. But I was looking at every cover, looking for these psychedelic records that might be trips uh, in my mind that might be what it's like in Kentucky, what it's like going on in the West Coast in New York City. So I started going through there and the thrift stores and anything that looked that way, uh, you know, I'd buy. And later I noticed, well, some of these are a little different. Like you know, most of them are on these, you know, label names I know or something, but here's one on Union Jack or here's one on something. And eventually I started discerning that these homemade records were, were different. They were coming more direct from the person that made them and not through all the usual channels. So, right. I think what it was is basically I, I uh, started out looking for psychedelic stuff, but I expanded to any record that looks interesting, which eventually became these genres like loner folk and and incredibly strange music, even stuff that wasn't rock and roll. If it looked like you know somebody uh, used a muffler to build a guitar off his car, I'd have to hear, what's that muff-tar? I remember a band <laughs> did that once. What's that muff-tar sound like? And of course, I get the record, it sounded like a normal guitar. It was a downer. But, uh, <laughs> but basically, I was just digging through all these use records like an obsessed kid right from the get-go. And since money was tight, I, I first would hit the head shops that had used record sections. And that's where in uh, 
1968, I got the 13th floor elevators Easter everywhere. I didn't know what it was then for 29 cents in Louisville. And I'm so that's how I got. I just went that direction where all of a sudden when I'm in a store, if I only had so much money, I'd buy all the private pressings and figure I'll come back for, you know, that, you know, famous album later. It had to be searching for unknown psychedelic things. Right. Yeah. It's like unlocking a secret no one else knows about. Right. And then you turn your friends on to right. it, you know which didn't work so well with my friends towards the end of high school. Uh, we used to have parties where uh, everybody got to bring one record over and we'd smoke some weed in my friend's basement. And uh, the deal was everybody brings their album. We have to listen to the whole album. So my friends and I would get together, and this is after I was already buying like Silver Apples down from Velvet Underground and all the kind of things when they hit the cutouts or the used shops. So we had a thing in my friend, uh, his name was Kevin, I remember his basement. Uh, they had a big house in the basement with like a cool place to hang out as teens and you, you, you could smoke and listen to records. And we had a deal like uh, we'd have a party maybe once a month. Everybody got to bring one album over. And the rule was during the party, everybody's album gets to play no matter what everybody thinks of it the whole album has to be listened to so yeah at my time you know uh i was bringing over things like uh white like white heat by the velvet underground bringing over the first stooges albums and things like that while uh basically what was being played were whatever the latest yes or jethro tull or uh you know james taylor even or whatever type albums so when i put on white light white heat which was the first one i remember one of these things it's like people wanted to change the rules really fast and say no no you know there's an exception we don't have to listen to this one all the way through but i i maintained it knowing that they're just part way through side one and they're going to get like sister ray and there's nothing they can do about it like, except like you know go outside <laughs> so i got a real response you know and and as time went on from there, uh, you know, I left town uh, and went to college in St. Louis and got into different styles of music as time went along, but still was into the really garage punk, into psychedelic uh, core was the stuff that was getting me off the most even at that time. And uh, that's when uh, I started finding some more records there that I wouldn't find it in Louisville at the places I went, uh, head shops and used stores. And uh started uh, getting more records and having this glimmer like, you know, on some of the stores, you know, some of these records they ask a little bit more for or something. And there was a weird thing in St. Louis at the time when I was there, the local uh, FM radio station, KSHE, at midnight each Saturday would play the entire second side of the J.D. Blackfoot Ultimate Prophecy album. Wow. Uh, of the psych fan from uh, Columbus. And it was kind of a deal there. They they would advertise it over the week and saying that at midnight. And it's interesting that J.D. Blackfoot from Columbus was a superstar in St. Louis then, but pretty much nowhere else. <laughs> this is the ultimate prophecy. So, yeah, I, I uh, got a little glimmer, you know, of, well, there's, you know, there's just, it's not just me and, you know, all my friends hated this stuff, but there's people out there. And I started meeting people when I went to St. Louis. I, I bumped into somebody that had the Sonics and 
I had had the uh, 13th floor elevators, which I bought Louisville for 29 cents in 1968 in a, a used shop called Rivertown Records that uh, used to rubber stamp their address on the back of each album. It's incredible over the years. All the records I saw that you know, were still with me 20 years later, lounge bands or whatever that looked odd, you know, I'd see that and say, oh, you know, wow, I've had that. Maybe if I listen to it now. <laughs> <laughs> so it was this, the whole adventure of the used record stores going to St. Louis, going out to L.A. and first half of 77 with my band and then deciding we should have come to New York and then hitting uh, New York uh, January 78, I guess, the movement to the city. And uh, those trips to L.A. and uh, New York, of course, used record stores were a whole dimension beyond uh, what I'd experienced. And I also walked into a store and I remember uh, saying, oh, uh, Moving Sidewalks album was on the wall for 40 bucks. I'm thinking, wow, you know, I got that. Chocolate Watchpan, these other things. And then I realized it wasn't just me. I started connecting people like I'm sure the way you did your passion you start connecting with other people before the internet you get contacts in each city and you ask them what are the good local records and you start trading them from where you are the, the whole thing sort of developed for me out of that my passion was the private pressing of course uh, and I didn't really make a difference uh, in my mind so much early on like if it was a small label or or the fact that uh Elevators on international artists was a little bit different of a way it's coming at you than than something on Columbia Records or Capitol or whatever. And then I started noticing and and got an entire fetish for like the more primitive the cover look, the better. Yeah, the slicks are like pasted pasted on, or if it's even a hand drawn cover, anything more that makes it look as further as for far away as product <laughs> at the time intrigued me more. And I started noticing these records, they look strange, you know, and I buy them all cause they were all in the junk bins of every store until the internet got going and I buy them and bring them all back. And I, I discover an, a really good local garage psychedelic band, you know, uh, or something like that. And that became my passion, uh, is the private pressings. And, and I guess what led to, uh, Dave getting in touch with me because he had seen this book that was sort of written about my passion uh, for uh, those records, and uh, he got in touch and, and said, "Oh, you should we should should do a podcast type thing, and it should be the private pressing." So I figured, well, yeah, you know, that is my main thing for sure. Next, I asked Dave Gabbro about how the Discography podcast got started, how it's structured, and how the Paul Major private press episodes figure into the whole picture. Tell me about the Discography podcast. How is that structured? You have um, several different kind of threads and levels going with that. Maybe you could lay that out for us. Yeah, so, you know, I am an obsessive person by nature. I think probably, Mike, you can relate to that a little bit. Um, You know, the rabbit hole, it just gets bigger and bigger the more you look at it. So I wanted to put a structure of a show together. Uh, Also, you know, know, uh, getting any money from me is a big ask. Like, you know, I pay a dollar a week for the New York Times, and I think they wanted to up it to two bucks. And I was like, no, I was fully planning on, you know, no way. I'm just, I can do with that news. 
Um, <laughs> so to ask people to join up uh, Patreon and to ask for a monthly commitment, I immediately knew that I had to differentiate myself by bringing upon myself a backbreaking degree of labor to make it worth it. So each week is structured as a deep dive that literally goes as deep as you want to go. Uh, every Friday there is the above the board, you know, the classic discography show, which is uh, taking one artist or band going through their entire discography, literally everything they have ever released, including singles, EPs, some live stuff and bootlegs. I mean, just everything. And, um, you know, really heavily researched as well. And then we get a guest on who it's typically their favorite band. And then we rate everything. So that's kind of the, I see that as, uh, that's the beginning of the deep dive. That is the jumping off of the diving board. Then the Monday show is a wild card episode. And the Wednesday show is the private press with Paul major. And that just goes further. And for, we're training the microscope down, down, down until, uh, that's the end of the week and we start again. Right. Okay. That's great. I mean, that's a lot of time commitment right there. I mean, for the listener as well as for you, obviously. I mean, you, you've got to have a loyal uh, listenership there. Yeah, I, you know, I, I definitely do. And I'm extremely grateful for that because when I started, I'm guessing it was a similar pursuit to you. You know, I got a straight job for years. I was actually a filmmaker before the the podcast. So I have two feature films that I've written, directed, and produced that are, you know, distributed and, and the whole thing. Uh, but then I got a straight job for years and I've never been one to only focus on a straight job without some kind of artistic pursuit on the side. And it, it exploded out of me. So I got, um, within six months, I had kidney cancer and then two neck operations I was out of work for a year. Uh, the pandemic hit. At that point, my wife got laid off. Massive, massive life changes happening. Yeah. Uh, and the birth of our son. And um, yeah, I, it just uh, hit me at a certain point that I would much rather see my son, uh, like have my son watch his dad follow his heart no matter what, um, you know, rather than you know, a safe a predictable kind of a life. So I, you know, over the last few months with obviously, you know, it wasn't immediate, but it got to a point where I was waking up in the middle of the night, working on discography from 2 a.m. until when I went to work and then I'd go to work, work on it all day while I was at work, literally all day and nonstop. And when I was supposed to do tasks for my actual job, I would start to become more and more irri irritated by it uh, <laughs> until it just became inevitable and ineffable and unavoidable that this was, this was it. So, um, you know, we, we sold our house, we drove across country and we are, you know, the only income currently is the money that's coming in through Patreon. And, you know, it's, it's not a lot, but um, I guess, you know, you can't buy, a, you can't buy a manufactured sense of well-being. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, you've got to be creatively fulfilled, or you're you're hollow. You know, if if you're that kind of person, you know, which obviously you are. Yeah, that's where I was. Is I was, you know, my body was, uh, I was physiologically 
being woken up to be put to work on this thing. Uh, it started as a lark, and then it became uh, massively so a, a total mission because, you know, a lot of these people, you know, I'm, I'm sure you come across this feeling, too. We're doing kind of the same thing, which is, you know, these people are all dying off, and there's no one taking their place. I don't mean to sound like a curmudgeon, but there's uh, there's some good music that's still being made now, but it's not like it was. No, and, no, it's not. You know, so I do these really long interviews. I just did one with Terry Kirkman and Jules Alexander from the Association, and it was 13 hours long. Oh, wow. That's yeah, amazing. 13 yeah, 13 fucking hours. <laughs> yeah, no, it, that, that sounds similar to, to some of the stuff I do. You know, I'll do a, you know, a 50 hours of interviews with a band, you know, for a 30-page story. You know, that's how it goes, you know. Um, but because that generation is dying off, and, and really, when you think about it, you know, rock and roll was really a 20, 20th century, you know, musical genre. It's still people making it, but it's not the cultural force that it once was. It's not... You know, such a dynamic presence in the you know the lives of all young people like it used to be. It's just one form of entertainment of many that is available now. I've had my view of happiness and my view of despair. I've cleaned out all the cobwebs and I've learned how to compare. I've seen all of it's content, right? Yeah, yeah, everything is and, content. And, and, and it's no, no more records or playlists. So it's, you know, this is, um, it's, it's scary to me. I mean, it's a, most progress is is, uh, is exactly that. It's, I mean, you can get nostalgically connected to a certain thing. Like, for example, when we take pictures with our cell phones, we're hearing that shutter click. But it's only a ghostly reminder that that was something that used to happen. Within 10 years... That'll be a stranger of a sound to most people on the planet, and then they'll do away with needing that sound as a link. So things are moving quick, and, you know, this is something that, just like vinyl coming back, I mean, we can kind of kick against it so that people get introduced to all these great things that, you know, really should not be dying off. Yeah, right, I hear you. Well, that's, you know... Before you know, now, now we've done with the, the discussion of the end of civilization as we know it. <laughs> Let's go <laughs> back just to the... I wandered down a dark alley. <laughs> yeah, no, and I'll and I'll talk all day about that, but but uh, I think people will be tuning out pretty fast. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, no so what what made you get into the idea of doing the private press podcast with Paul Major? I mean, Paul is a, a legend, you know, but um, obviously he's the guy that knows most about that kind of music. But what made you get interested in these private press records? Uh, I, the podcast started, first show was November 1st, 2021. And that Christmas slash Hanukkah, I got a, I got his book from my wife. And I, initially I thought, oh, this is cool. You know, and then when I started looking into the records, because really my private press experience was super minimal. I mean, I knew about the Shags, you know, I, you know, I knew Darius. I, there were a few others that, that I knew, but really a total surface knowledge of, of the scene. And Paul's book really blew my mind. Uh, right. I started, you know, again with the insomnia. 
you know, these, these records truly lend themselves to that, you know, late night mentality. So to hear all that stuff, um, it, you know, it was, I did grow a new set of ears. Uh, you know, I, that did happen to me. It's a process that Paul talks about in his book. And I started to understand it, not just as a, you know, a point and laugh kind of thing, like, you know, the, you know, anyone who doesn't make it onto American Idol, you know, I just figured it was, a lot of it was that, was people who were just not that great. But Paul really shone light down on the real implications of it. And as a bizarre world, concurrent parallel history of, of music, it is incredible. Let's pick up where I left off with Paul, talking about some of his favorite psychedelic private press discoveries. When I started going over to London in the early 80s, and I lived in London for in 86 for half a year, and, and, and I said, oh, they have private pressings in England, too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so I would just buy anything, and they were still mostly pretty cheap then. There were certain things, you know, that were 50 pounds and 100 pounds, but almost all the most homemade-looking records were, were private press. So I'd, I'd go to the store, and I'd see something that I know I should buy, like a Magic Mixture album or something for a good price. But if there were private pressings, <laughs> I'd buy all those. <laughs> take them and listen to them, and most of them would be bad. But then that's how I like I discovered that album, Dark uh, Around the Edges, UK album. That's one of the biggest ones, I guess now, like a ten thousand dollar record or something. What's that thing? Buying every private press and saying this looks interesting. They pasted their own covers. It's got a picture of his girlfriend on the front, <laughs> <laughs> and, and great song titles great song titles with long tracks and I'm thinking there's no way this is not going to be something you know that, right yeah so those are the clues my yeah. And, the, yeah. <laughs> and I guess with the same with you back in the day I know before the information was out there and you had the ears and you're coming across all these flea markets and places and you find something really that you know is really good and you think whoa you know I get to look through all these and I'm the first person looking for anything that smells psychedelic or smells garage or smells like it's coming from any weird angle out of the twilight zone. <laughs> that, that's my private press passion it is, uh, was launched by 1966, uh, garage rock going psychedelic, like the first winds of that blowing in. And that set my thing for a long time to wanting things that were adventurous I guess, because at that time, of course, then it's like, well, all this stuff's happening that hasn't happened before. And, and it's happening in the biggest hit records in the world, even <laughs> at that yeah. time. So it was like, uh, I just got so fired up to pursue that, that I just had to buy every obscure record that looked like it would be along those lines. And then later started branching out because I'd see a really weird lounge band looking album like looks totally cheesy but they do a song that i forgot i gotta hear how they do that you know <laughs> or something and i started finding out oh there's really deep heavy incredible records that way and with folklands i used to not pay any attention early on i sold a lot of 
I'm sure back in my catalogs, a lot of the really big loner folk records now, because back at the time when I got them, I didn't have the patience for a guy who's just with a guitar <laughs> or something. <laughs> I, had to, I had to have like the five guitars and the, the high energy and the and all that stuff so much that I couldn't, I, I couldn't slow myself down. And I guess there were so many albums back then, of course, uh, out there because everything was kind of pretty much just undiscovered and lurking in every city where uh, the local scenes were. So yeah. it, it, it was interesting. But later I branched into that too. You know, like, in fact, I remember it was uh, pretty way back when it getting a, just on speculation, Perry Leopold album from Philadelphia. And it was in a guy named Mike Hoffman who was dealing lots of records out of Philly back then in the late 70s and 80s and a lot of a lot of like Bundy Wave era stuff in that too or something and it was in one of his lists like local PA record ten dollars you know and I, I thought oh Perry Leopold experiment metaphysics that sounds like it might be interesting and it was one just a guy with his guitar you never see your face you never know just how you look outside your world and then I heard that and I said, wait a minute, okay, yeah, you know, I gotta pay more attention, you know. I gotta not like, uh, feel like if I'm not getting like overwhelmed or something, I gotta sit back and listen for a little atmosphere. So I went all directions with private pressings after that, basically. Anything uh, homemade looking, I give a chance. Right, I mean, you were the first to discover some of these records that later became really sought after records i mean can you think of an example of you know some of the some of your favorite discoveries yeah. that still kind of stand yeah there, up? there really are a lot of them yeah there really are a lot back then uh i can remember some of the ones would be fraction the new dawn for u.s ones uh of course peter grudgian for all-time record from the twilight zone uh yeah right a lot of other ones i got way back when and i would try track the uh, bands down back then and get get uh clients i jumped on that pretty quick because i noticed a couple other people that were dealing these type records would have quantities and it occurred to me oh wait you know i got my copy but if i have more copies i can trade them for other stuff like this and the whole evolved <laughs> out of that so so be like i got a hold of uh bob my nail from fraction and got four sealed copies in the mid 80s and wow. i had 38 sealed copies of the new dawn which took me a year to get. And there's a little bit of a story there where uh, the producer, Gary Neeland, the person I got a hold of, but then he would never get on the phone and it would always be his girlfriend on the phone. And she'd be telling me he owns some houses and he thinks there's a box of the records in one of the houses, but it's like rented out to somebody, you know, but uh, he, you know, he'll get over there and look for him. You know? And then of course I don't hear from a month. So I call back and I'm talking to her and then, and say, oh, did he get over there yet? You know, I'll, I want to like pay you like fifty dollars a copy for how many you get. And then she sort of lit up a little bit more and started bugging him. And then some more time went by and he wasn't getting there. And then eventually I said to her, you know, if you can make this happen, I'll buy every copy you can find for fifty bucks. This would be late eighty, and uh, and I'll send you five hundred dollars just to you after it happens. <laughs> and, and then it happened really quick. <laughs> Yeah, a little incentive. Yeah, let's talk about the New Dawn album. You did a great episode on that one, and and I love that album too. It's 
it's like you said, it's kind of a, a throwback album because it's from 1970, but, you know, everything sonically about it is sort of 1966-67 kind of garage band, but there's a sort of, maybe there's right. a tinge of lounge about it. I don't know. I mean, what's your what's your take on that album? Well, I definitely, uh, I remember when I first got it, uh, it was one I didn't find it myself, but somebody in uh, Costa Mesa, California, I think it was, who I was trading with saying, just buy local records, you know, whatever, you know, and this guy was really into loud garage punk. So the new Don was kind of wimpy for him. So it was in one of his boxes. And when I got it right away, it blew my mind. I looked at the cover with them in the mist in the matching suit. And I registered a lounge little click right away, even before I turned it over. Then I look at the song title and uh, I realized, well, something's got going on here for sure. And uh, when I played it, you know, thinking it's from 1970, it just blew me away in the biggest way. One of my favorite records of all time. Uh, immediately, I, I, I couldn't believe it. And, and it was a thing. It was like, this is like that first when I came in the door, 66 into 67 psychedelic. But these guys are like three years later. Let's see, they're, they're in the Pacific Northwest. I know it didn't take that long for that vibe to get there. Maybe it did in Louisville. <laughs> uh, but uh, I uh, just thought it was incredible. I think the songwriting's incredible. And I was intrigued. And this is something I avoided forever wanting to have a firm answer on actually it's something i don't want to know about the records because when i listen to it i figured this is loosely a concept album about a guy there's this new dawn and then pretty soon you're getting into all in the second third track you're getting into well the world's pretty messed up you know this punk. <laughs> and then by the end of side one you have the punk song dark thoughts and he's just really dark and messed up over the girl <laughs> you're yeah. thinking oh no this new dawn and that with the way the organ sounds and everything too it, it, it flashed me back to the 66 67 early psychedelic sound with that context and then through when it gets to the last two tracks on side two it just blew my mind because the second to last track last morning he's singing this imagery like and it's his last morning and he hears the milkman down the street with the clinking bottles. And I'm thinking, hey, what a creepy image. And he, it, it's his last day and he's hearing that like symbol of, you know, the milk in the bottle, the other end of it. And he's sitting there brooding and everything goes wrong. And then in the last track, Life Goes On, which is a great title for the track, he dies. <laughs> he's yeah. waiting for death and he has the self-pity oozing from his clan. I figured this out. This is a concept album about suicide. <laughs> In a loose way, I don't want to know if uh, yeah, that's just my mind or, or if they were saying, yeah, you know, actually, yeah, you know, he did. He didn't just sit, wait and die to die. He, he, he committed suicide, Dan. It's a question I, I never want to answer personally. <laughs> right. That's the narrative that works for you. That's the, the story the song's yeah. for you. And, yeah. and having that kind of music, because it's the, the music there with the use of the fuzz guitars and that. It's not savage funk, but it's, I mean, punk, but it's really psychedelic. And it, you know, brings back to mind the music machine and the 
early strobier alarm clock and a lot of those type of psychedelic uh, sounds as well and the doors and that the way it's arranged with the organ and the guitar parts when it is a fuzz it's like a little part of the composition the songs are pretty much constructed like like you know like pop songs or something so it just uh it just you know stunned me and the mood of it it's so world weary it's yeah. one of the longest shelf life albums that i yeah. have uh, or something because a lot of the ones i love especially you know great high energy garage records and things like that uh, as time goes on it's sort of like mm, you know i'm i'm vibing now more like with the ones that are stepping back with this weird sort of perspective or something you know i don't want to get knocked over so much now now i'd be sort of you know carried away into another land <laughs> yeah i hear you yeah yeah they, some of those albums seem to have more staying power with you somehow you know you can play them again and again and find other kind of levels to them and other layers yeah yeah exactly they, they do change and that's one of the things of uh since getting uh talked into doing a podcast type vibe it has meant that there are a lot of records because so many a lot of ones i really liked back then and haven't listened to for 20 or 30 years <laughs> and that too are coming up where where i i do the intense listen because maybe, you know, some of them, maybe I, you know, sort of put them on or something, but never sit and listen. And so over time, it's like the new dawn way, way, you know, up in my personal pantheon for the stuff that, that, that just, when I put it on, I can stay there. Yeah, <laughs> right. And other ones, I was listening to that Los Vidrios Cobrados the other day after not having heard forever. That one went way up in my mind, too, for like a sort of melancholy garage just yeah. before psychedelic and so that's yeah. been kind of fun with the private press thing and then the obscure records for me is now at the stage of my life being 68 you know and having first turned on with the psychotic reaction at the end of 66 where things are now in, in perspective and uh like you know if there's a party going on i could listen to the stooges fine house again but i i, I couldn't really i probably would never put it on myself at home anymore <laughs> as much as I love it. You know? Yeah, no, I hear you. <laughs> Let's talk about um, one of the other episodes, the great album, Junior and his Soulettes. I mean, that's, oh, uh -huh. that's a very, this is not, well, it's not typical for any genre, but certainly it's not a typical private press record. Maybe you could describe that for people that haven't heard it, the backstory. Yeah, it's uh, certainly one of the most incredible records from uh, planet Earth. You know, I think of it as, I mean, it, it, it's really terrific musically, the look of it and everything, but I, I think of it, it's not just a record, it's life itself captured there. <laughs> yeah. kids and I, I got blown away by it rich helped uh, is who turned me on to it and of course that's the story of uh, him and uh mark migliori at the time being in oklahoma city and describes a place where there were two ladies that have what thousands and thousands of records and they find this they have their little turntable so they can sample things and they find a copy that's melted except when they got all the way towards the label they could cure a little bit <laughs> 
they figure they have to find this record. They see like uh, three sisters and a brother, uh, black kids band, overseen by uh, their uh, uncle. And Junior, I think was 11, 10 or 11, and the sisters are all younger. So it's like the youngest kids record. And right on there, you see the pictures of them with their organs and the guitar, and you go, this has got to be incredible. So I'm yeah. thinking like how, how Rich Hout felt when he's holding that record. And of course, what they did is they instantly found uh, Harold Moore and went over to his house. And the whole story's online. If you, uh, people want to Google uh, Rich talking about it, but if you Google Junior Solettes. But I'll, I'll abbreviate it to say for travels, and I've had some adventures uh, tracking down bands in some places that definitely resembled the Twilight Zone uh, <laughs> in pursuit of all these unusual records. But this fantastic um, organ and guitar garage kids record, Richard Holden, they go to the house and the story, I'll, I'll leave the story to other people. It's crazier than you can even imagine. They're it getting the record, the backstory about the uncle and the plasticine uh, panels with booths where he would hire uh, hookers to come and dance and uh, with his snake, which was a sock puppet, a sock puppet that looked like a pimp. And, and he's saying, well, you know, the kids don't know about any of this stuff going on, though. You know, don't mention that. And, that. <laughs> and, and so there, it's an incredible story. He finds a record. And when I get a uh, copy from him, I'm just, you know, chills went up, up my spine because it's really listenable. It's almost like the same song for the whole album <laughs> yeah. in a way with a few songs with vocals and uh, you know i'm stunned like i think it was the second track on the album maybe his mama loved tequila <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's right tequila <laughs> baby loved tequila and i'm thinking oh you know and there's back more backstory about uh about that too <laughs> and uh <laughs> I'm just thinking that this is, you know, a private present uh, that they had made. Uh, the kids wanted to be in a band, and they had a lo local supporter who got them on a talent contest. They made the record, sent it off to the private present, and came back with it. And one of the all-time great stories is uh, uh, that, you know, I fortunately had two copies that were really nice copies, and I know one came to Rich. Both of them must have, uh, I think. But almost every copy is like the first one they found, which uh, prompted them to get in, find the guy that made the record immediately. They were all melted because when they got the records back, they took them to store and the stores locally, and they weren't shrink wrapped. And the store said they have to be shrink wrapped if you put it in the stores. And they figured, oh, you know, our uncle has a butcher shop, you know, with a thing where they you know, uh, seal the packages of beef. So they tried to seal the albums on the meat uh, sealing machine and melted them all. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I just love that record. It's a slice of America to me. For me, it's a, culturally and the whole glimpse into things is, uh, I, uh, is why I, I think my main angle I come from is no matter what I'm listening to, I'm always really have to know about the person behind it and the circumstances because the, the person's life is it's sort of like uh, when I find one of these records and it's a bizarre record I figure how's this going to add up 
are they strange like the record or, you know, what? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I can relate to that. I mean, that was, you know, when I saw that Matreya Kali album and heard, and heard oh, that, yeah. you know, that sent me on like a 15-year journey, you know, to find out how did this guy end up like this, you know, and uh, what is the story? I, I knew there had to be a great story. One last farewell, one last goodbye. Yeah, finding out it draws in the monkeys and the Beach Boys and the whole thing. Yeah, and it intrigued me. That's another thing that totally intrigues me is like L.A. in that time period. Like a lot of people are into San Francisco, legends or something, which I'm interested in the history there, of course, as well, and the whole deal. But the characters lurking behind, you know, like Darius and people like that, I'm, I'm, my imagination goes, I imagine, oh, you know, some of these people need like creation sunlight and, and so forth. You know, they're up at those parties, like in that movie Shampoo and on Mulholland Drive, you know, or something with, with, yeah, or something like that. These characters behind the scenes, you know, doing the deals, supplying the drugs, whatever it is, that whole culture behind it. And Maitre Kali, Craig Smith is like, like, you know, be a point man for that whole vibe. You know, somebody behind the scenes, it's so incredible. Yeah, yeah. To the people that didn't make it, you know, in this whole melting pot of talent and hustlers and crime and creativity it was just amazing uh what came out of it you know oh, completely hence you know like the you know the the thing that uh was a driving force for me was sort of like seeking out these people and putting together a picture of what was going on everywhere and uh almost some context like you know all these people you know i just have to know about them and it really illuminates the music for me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that's a big part of what we're all doing. Um, uh, let's talk about another album, um, which, and I have only heard this one in the last year or so. It's uh, Stonewall, which is right. what an amazing record. It is incredible. Uh, it deservedly uh, reached the price with that copy that uh, uh, they had at uh, Academy, right? Some years ago, going for $14,000. <laughs> wow. Somebody paid it, right? Yeah. An all-time high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I authenticated it since I had had a copy that I got in the late 80s. But uh, at that time, uh, for me, it, was a, it came as a... Another person I was trading boxes of records uh, who was out in L.A. Uh, late 80s sometime in a box of records. So, you know, I, people by then knew I was always interested in albums on the Tiger Lily, Morris Levy associated uh, label because I loved this John Scoggins album. And, and, and the label intrigued me where it exists in this void sort of between private pressings and a real label, these tax law scam records. And I got the... Uh, a box from him and I was putting all the records on and at that time my head was still so into psychedelic I, and I was doing a catalog as I was doing it so I was putting all the you know records in and I was sort of sampling so oh, it's kind of good hard rock but it sounds like 
normal hard rock. I didn't get enough to listen. So I put it in a catalog for set sale for $60 and uh, got the catalog out. And then uh, in between the time the calls were going to start coming in in a day or two, and I'd be on the phone for the next three weeks nonstop uh, doing or- the orders. I decided, oh, I'll better check out a few of these records again. And then I put on the stone wall and I listened to it more. And I said, this is great. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't have to be weird to appeal to me now. This is just great straight up. And, and it blew me away then uh, uh, completely. And uh, I had no luck finding uh, anything about it back then. I think the only name on the record then was Jimmy Goldstein. I think some of the boot reissues overseas even made up different names and all kinds of history, I guess, until, of course, now that uh, the reissue is out legitimately, but uh, it's incredible, and uh, I, I DJ fairly frequently in the city here, and I always have Stonewall with me. Let's get back to Dave Gabriel and the Discography Podcast. Dave, who as you heard earlier has a background in film, is in the process of turning Discography into a TV series. I asked him to lay his concept out for us, along with a few final thoughts. So what I see it as, I mean, you know, in my my mind's eye, what I'm picturing is, I don't know why I'm picturing it like with this specific person, but the group The Plastic Cloud is one of my favorite private presses. I'm sure you're well familiar with it. Right, yeah, Canadian band, yeah. Yeah. So I picture that the the main guy from Plastic Cloud, you know, a guy who, you know, is not like wildly, you know, just like long, tangled mass of hair and to- totally, you know, different way of living life. He looks like he could be a straight arrow, but like was at a fork in the road uh, in 66 or 67 and, uh, you know, kind of decided he was going to be like a self-styled uh, self-styled psychedelic guru. Um, and then his record never hit. And in my head, I'm thinking, this is a guy that in all likelihood got some kind of job like being an accountant or something, is taking daily sips of Joe from a world's greatest grandpa mug. <laughs> but in his heart, he was this guy. He could have been that guy still. And so it's, you know putting those two people together and trying to make sense of the full person, who this person is. Uh, You know, you can do that to a certain extent uh, on a Zoom call, which we do. I mean, like, if you go and listen to the Michael Farnetti episode, you know, these are people who... Ne- so unused to the spotlight it, you know for Michael it was the second interview he'd ever done right. so you know there's a different feeling than if you're interviewing anybody else they're they're incredibly grateful things are coming out of them that they didn't even know they thought because they'd never heard their thoughts out loud yeah. um, about this thing and that's a level of fascinating that you can't get from a regular interview plus to be there in their domain uh, to try to make sense of all that um, is just so cool. So I thought I would love to be the guy who's responsible for bringing the subterranean out into the light. Um, 
not to, you know, not in any, literally the, the only reason is because I think it belongs to be there. It belongs there just as much as any of the other strains of music that were and became popular. But these artists deserve it. And it just seems like, uh, you know, hey, this is somewhere where I could lend my talents. And it's a win-win for everybody because um, I'm more interested, as much of a music obsessive as I am, I'm more interested in the emotional ramifications of spending time with someone um, who, you know, can come to a little bit of a peace or have closure with that epi- with that time in their life or even to reawaken stuff, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, the human element of those, behind the music is so important, I think, and, and it's something that people aren't always exposed to because they get a very carefully manufactured and manipulated image, you know, that wraps around the music, you know, and it becomes a myth. Um, and these yeah. people that never found success, they never got to create that myth. They never got to tell their story so many times that it got polished and embellished and, and you know, nice and shiny and presentable. They're, like you say, you know, and I find this a lot when I interview people, they're telling those stories for the first time. And it's kind of the unvarnished truth. It's not tall tales uh, repeated or self-aggrandizing, you know, myth-making. You know, it's, it's really human. And we'll end it on that note. The human element is really what makes the best private press records so fascinating and so sought after. Discography comes out every Friday at 4 a.m. Eastern Time, and their Patreon episodes are new every Monday and Wednesday. I hope you'll give them a listen and give them your support. The Ugly Things Podcast was produced by James Archer and narrated by Mike Stacks. That's me. I've been publishing Ugly Things magazine now for 40 years, covering the best overlooked music of the 1960s and beyond. You can order the latest issue of the magazine at UglyThings.com. That's Ugly-Things.com, where you can also order back issues, vinyl, CDs, and books, and read additional articles and reviews. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, and tell your friends. We would also really appreciate it if you became a Patreon supporter. For a small monthly donation, Patreon members get exclusive access to all kinds of interesting bonus content. Your contribution will help us keep bringing you the very best in 1960s beat, garage, and psychedelic music. I'd like to send out a personal thank you to our top Patreon supporters. Chip Lyon, Michael Barbera, Rob Brannigan, Stephen Schmidt, and Ray Brandis. Thank you, all of you, for your support, and thank you for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 